0: And at the base of this notion of a Russian world is that the Russians are the sole legitimate heir of the baptism of the Eastern Slavs in 988. And that's just false. So there's a false story going on. And false stories get you in an awful lot of trouble in history.
1: That was George Weigel, who will be joining us in a bit on this episode of Religious Freedom Matters. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati-Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. My co-host for this episode is senior editor at the National Catholic Register, Joan Desmond. Welcome, Joan. Great to be with you, Andrea. Our fourth season of Religious Freedom Matters will focus on international religious freedom and the horrifying threats to it across the globe we'll be looking at specific hotspots where religious believers face persecution by state and non-state actors. It's happening in China, India, Pakistan, right across the Middle East and in several African countries, especially Nigeria, now experiencing wave after wave of brutal massacres of Christians. But our first episode will focus on Europe, where Russia's invasion of Ukraine threatens the security of both orthodox and catholics. But first, We're thrilled to have George Weigel, distinguished scholar at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., joining us to give us important background. Welcome, Mr. Weigel.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: George, um, the world has been horrified by Russian aggression and amazed at the resolve of the Ukrainian people. Can you give us a historical snapshot that explains the rather complicated religious situation involving Russia and the Ukraine.
0: I'll I'll try to keep this as short as possible, at least for purposes of clarity. For centuries, uh, Russian orthodoxy has claimed that it is the only legitimate heir to the baptism of the Eastern Slavic peoples in 988 A.D. Now that baptism took place in Kiev at the time when Moscow was a forest inhabited by wild animals. Uh, The claim does not make sense historically, it doesn't make sense theologically, but it's integral to Russian national identity. Uh, This claim has been revitalized or revivified in recent decades by the Russian Orthodox Church, and particularly by its current patriarch, Patriarch uh, Kirill. Uh, and it's part of the, uh, I guess we would call it the ideological superstructure of, of Putin's attempt to reconstitute uh, the old Soviet empire in the name of what is called in Russian, the Rusky Mir, the Russian world. And at the base of this notion of a Russian world is that the Russians are the sole legitimate heir of the baptism of the Eastern Slavs in 988. And that's just false. So there's a false story going on here. And false stories get you in an awful lot of trouble in history. So that's that's the classic illustrated version of this complicated historical situation.
2: Thank you, George. Um, I think you did an admirable job. What a what a tricky situation. And it's so fascinating how new and old came together when the pope met Kirill for the first time in Cuba on one of his previous uh, meetings. But let's turn to you know, Ukraine is a country with a sizable Eastern Rite Catholic community. Yet Pope Francis seems anxious to maintain his relationship with the patriarch Kirill, who's a, a close ally also of Vladimir Putin. Pope Francis has made public pronouncements condemning the atrocities in Ukraine, but he has always stopped short of naming Putin or Russia as a perpetrator.
0: What's going on? At least since the early 60s, John, there has been what I would frankly call an obsession in the Vatican with privileging ecumenical relations with with Russian Orthodoxy. The theory seems to be that Russian Orthodoxy is the largest of the Eastern Christian communities. Therefore, if you want to heal the breach between Western and Eastern Christianity, you start bridge building with the Russians. Well, the fact is that the Russian church is in terrible shape in Russia and that its leadership is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Kremlin. Patriarch Kirill began his ecclesiastical career as a junior official of the Russian Orthodox Church at the World Council of Churches in Geneva. When he went there, the only way he would have gotten that job is if he were completely trusted by and perhaps working with the KGB, the Soviet Secret Intelligence Service. So to treat this man as as if he were a religious leader, as we understand the term, Rather than what he is, namely an instrument of Russian state power, it seems to me to be a very bad idea. The meeting in Havana did not at all take into account the concerns of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, the largest of the Eastern Catholic churches, over this attempt by the Russian Orthodox Church to monopolize the historical legacy of the baptism of the Eastern Slavic peoples in 988. I think there's beginning to be the glimmer of some recognition in the Holy See today that that Havana meeting was not particularly well prepared or carried out. But the fact is when we're talking about the Pope and the Patriarch, we're not talking about two religious leaders we're talking about one religious leader and one instrument of Soviet state power who has who during the first two months of the war in Ukraine uh, was justifying it in religious terms which some Vatican officials have said uh, is blasphemous
1: George I'm interested in hearing what you have heard about the communication going on between the Vatican and church leaders in Ukraine what is their perception of the support that the catholic church especially um the head of the catholic church and and the hierarchy for their plight for their people and their suffering
0: one of the first things to be said about the religious situation in ukraine is that there has been a remarkable unanimity of solidarity within uh, the leaders among the leaders of the two orthodox jurisdictions in ukraine uh, Archbishop Shevchuk, the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Archbishop Mokritsky the head of the Latin Rite Catholic Church, which is very small uh, in Ukraine. They have all been united in their support of Ukrainian sovereignty and independence, including those parts of the, Rus- of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which are primarily Russian-speaking. Uh, there is a fantastic amount of disinformation circulating in the West about Russian speakers welcoming the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is completely false in the main. Uh, And the uh, Christian leaders of Ukraine, I think have been uh, remarkably uh, united, strikingly united uh, during the war. I don't think they feel they're getting a lot of help or at least hadn't gotten a lot of help in the first two months uh from the holy see from the vatican um that's very unfortunate Um, but that's been the situation in other circumstances for example hard-pressed catholics in hong kong who's who are asking me by email where is our pope Uh, and i don't really have a good answer to that I don't doubt that the Pope cares about people like my friend Jimmy Lai, who's in jail right now uh, in Hong Kong. But the lack of uh, vocal defense of uh, the defenders of religious freedom in China has been a real um, blunder, I think, frankly, uh, by this uh, pontificate. It certainly would not have been the case under John Paul II or Benedict XVI. And it ought to be uh, an issue for discussion uh, in a future conclave to elect the successor to Pope Francis. Mm -hmm.
2: It almost, I mean, the Holy Father has had us focused on, you know, the so-called third way. And I do wonder if that in some way has influenced the Holy See's foreign policy in these two areas. But, you know, another figure who's really getting so much attention and support right now is Zelensky who's leading the government of Ukraine. I mean, he enjoys overwhelming support from the world community. And, you know, a lot of us are kind of stunned. Like, people hadn't followed him. They hadn't followed his rise to power. They hadn't seen what he had done. They hadn't realized how this was going to test him. And I think a lot of people had pretty low standards for what they were expecting from leadership, and it's been just the opposite. What can you tell us about Uh, his policies and his government's policies regarding religious freedom, uh, does it safeguard against religious persecution committed by non-state
0: actors? Uh, Joan, it's not just people who haven't been paying much attention who have been surprised by uh, (laughs) President Zelensky. It's people like me who have been paying a lot of attention for the last 15 years or so to Ukraine who are absolutely surprised and pleasantly so by this utterly remarkable performance that uh, this man has put on. Vladimir Zelensky is of Jewish heritage. He's married to an Orthodox uh, woman. Their children are baptized. Um, As a Jew in a country with a very difficult history of Jewish-Christian relations, going back hundreds of years, he is fully committed to religious freedom in full for everyone. And uh, the degree to which his support during the war has cut across all denominational and ethnic lines uh, has been really quite uh, astonishing. And I think heartening. Even those of us who are close to Ukraine who Uh, love its people and its efforts to be a part of the West, may have undervalued just how big a change happened in Ukraine in 2013-2014 with what is called there the Maidan Revolution of Dignity. Something really shifted in Ukrainian political culture. Uh, It it was not immediately visible at the national level where there continued to be corruption and oligarchs and all of this kind of stuff, but it was was becoming more and more clear at the local level. And under the pressure of this Russian aggression, uh, it's now manifest at the national level uh, as well. What people were, including my former students we're demonstrating for a frozen independent square, the Maidan in Kiev, in the winter of 2013-2014, is what everybody is fighting for in Ukraine. A decent society of religious freedom for all tolerance, a part of the West. These people want to be part of the West. And they don't necessarily want to be part of the, the decadent West. They want to be part of the best of and, and in that sense, they're summoning us to an examination of conscience, uh, too.
1: No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's um, there's so much to admire in the the stout defense that the Ukrainian people are giving to this horrific attack on their sovereignty, and just the the violence against, especially against civilians as well. I wanted to touch upon the issue of unity. And um, you know better than most about the importance of unity, especially during the Cold War, the unity of, of American Catholics in our concern for fellow believers and what they were suffering and facing, the aggression that they were facing. What do you make of Catholics today who seem indifferent to the plight of Ukrainians, especially those in the U.S. who have kind of taken a very isolationist view to the whole thing and saying that's not our problem. Well,
0: that's just idiotic to be uh, <laughs> perfectly candid. I agree. Uh, it is our problem. Um, and these people, by ha- asking for our help, have made it our problem. I mean, if you don't understand this in geopolitical or strategic terms, uh, namely that Putin is trying to undo the verdict of the Cold War, you don't think that's your problem. And you ought to think that a plea for help from decent people fighting barbarians makes it your problem. Uh, that having been said, uh, I think what I've experienced in the main, Andrea, is great concern for and uh, solid, solidarity with the Ukrainian people. In the first three weeks of the war, the Knights of Columbus raised almost $11 million. Uh, for support of uh, refugees uh, leaving Ukraine and going primarily to Poland. That, that's really quite astonishing. Um, and other Catholic aid agencies have been involved, but the Knights were the first out of the starting blocks and have, have done a magnificent uh, job. Uh, every place I go, I hear prayers for Ukraine. I think these you know, integralists, national conservatives, whatever they call themselves, uh, are a very small uh, minority, uh, largely existing in the in the fantasy world and the Twitterverse and social media. Uh, it's not reality. And reality is catching up with them. Reality is catching up with them. I remember reading recently that there was this, Strange woman in the early 19th century in America named Margaret Fuller, uh, who was a New England transcendentalist and had the usual strange ideas of the New England transcendentalist, who announced one day, I accept reality. (laughs) At at which point Thomas Carlyle, the British commentator, said, Well, she better have.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like
0: that's going to get some of our friends. in the Catholic integralist uh, world straightened <laughs> out here. It's reality.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, George. I think that's such a good point. And honestly, I think we've all been in our protected you know, bubble for all this time. The plight of Ukraine has forced a lot of people to have a kind of reckoning with the reality of evil in the world, of, of really gross, extreme barbaric threats to religious freedom to basic human rights and so it is an opportunity to reassess our commitment to religious freedom abroad as part of you know a broad broad level of support for the integrity you know of all nations and supporting that integrity in the post-cold war period so thank you for everything you have done to bring that to our attention i know at times you've had an uphill struggle to kind of get American Catholics to understand what is happening there, but I think you have succeeded. And I've noticed in, you know, even in some political races in the country where there are political figures who may be more isolationist, apparently surveys are saying Americans really care about what's happening in Ukraine and want to support Ukraine. So this is an important
0: moment. It's the first wired war in the history of the world. I mean, there's no getting away from it. If you've got a smartphone, if you've got a tablet, if you've got a television set, I mean, this is just coming at you all the time. And it's often coming in real time. Um, And that is exactly reminding people, Joan, of what you just said, that there are demonic forces at work in the world. Uh, Wickedness has not been wrung out of the human condition. And you've got to stand up to it. Because if you don't, it's going to do enormous damage, primarily to innocence, primarily to innocence. And uh, that kind of uh, suffering uh, demands uh, solidarity uh, and demands effective support for those under assault.
1: Well, George, I want to thank you for highlighting the incredible work done by the Knights of Columbus. If you had a chance to be able to contribute in the beginning of this horrible conflict, think again if you can contribute as well because their needs are increasing and the situation is dire and that is our reality. So many thanks to George Weigel from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. For more insight, their website includes a special landing page with many of George's commentary pieces, uh, they I don't know how you do it, George, but you're constantly keeping us all abreast to these important issues and pushing us to be more engaged, more concerned, and more prayerful. You can find out these pieces, read more about them at eppc.org backslash Weigel on Ukraine. Thanks again for joining us on Religious Freedom Matters.
0: Thanks, George. All right, ladies, nice to see you both.
1: Joining me now is Father Benedict Keeley, ordinariate priest and founder of Nazarene.org, an advocacy and aid organization for persecuted Christians. Father, welcome to Religious Freedom Matters.
3: Thank you for having me, Andrea.
1: Well, it's such a treat to have you, especially because you just got back from visiting Ukraine. Can you tell us about your trip, what you saw, and what was most impactful about that experience?
3: Well, I've been to Ukraine twice before in 2016 and 2017 to Kiev and to Lviv in comparative peace. Uh, this time was for really for advocacy. I was with a journalist friend who wanted to do a story on Easter in Ukraine, Orthodox and Ukrainian Catholic Easter, which was last weekend. So I had two Easter's in a row, two Good Fridays, two Holy Saturdays and two Easter Sundays. But my role, really, I wanted to go as a priest to see how the Ukrainian Catholic Church was doing uh, because that church has been so persecuted through communist times and really during the last 30 years has revived. But with the Russian advance, it puts them in peril once again. So it was to see, to be there, as I've been in Iraq many times and Syria, people really feel it's very humbling because they feel they're they're grateful that you come to to, to be with them and show them support. So that was the principal thing. And then just general fact finding, um, seeing what's, what's happening on the ground to be able to report, to do something like we're doing now, Andrea.
1: No, absolutely. And I'm wondering, you founded nazarene.org and a group that's provided incredible advocacy around the plight of persecuted christians in the middle east as well as getting necessary aid while you were in ukraine what did you see as far as the flow of humanitarian aid especially through church-run or faith-inspired organizations are they getting to the people in need in ukraine are they getting to the people who have fled and have there been any problems or interference by Russia in the flow of that necessary humanitarian relief?
3: Well, the the story that isn't really being reported in Western media from what I've seen and what we really lear- learned was, the story that we really learned, which um, is not really being reported in Western media, is that The vast majority of refugees are internal. They're not, of course, refugees. You can't be a refugee in your own country. They're what we learned to call in Iraq and Syria IDPs, internally displaced persons. And the vast majority of people are within Ukraine. They've been forced out of their homes and are having to be looked after in other parts, in the West in particular. And so the aid is now not so much about the people who fled. In fact, many are going back the important thing is to be able to help them in their own country, and there've been some marvelous things. We went to a parish just outside Lviv, uh, where a priest is with his parishioners is was packing boxes, Easter boxes for the troops. Uh, every I was rather pleased that every box had a packet of cigarettes because the troops like their cigarettes, and um, they didn't have any vodka. Apparently, that's not a good idea to send vodka to the troops. But uh, so, yes, it's, it's important. It's always small, though. I think one of the lessons as well is some of these huge organizations, they or things get lost. We can use that word lost with uh, quotation marks. Um, so small is good. Always trying to help some of the smaller organizations, trying to see where your money actually goes so that you feel secure.
1: No, and, and we've seen that there's been incredible effective relief given to through groups like the Knights of Columbus, Aid to the Church in Need, um, compared to any international organizations like the United Nations, for example, that's been notorious in not getting need to where it needs to go. Um, I'm wondering, too, you you mentioned before that you had the unique experience of celebrating two Easter's. You, Father, are definitely an Easter people. (laughs) What... What was the experience during that time? This is an incredible crisis that people are facing. And at the t- same time, they're celebrating and embracing their own cross. Um, what, was, what were some of the standout examples of the fortitude of the Ukrainian people, whether they are Ukrainian Catholics or Orthodox, and the, the role of faith in helping them continue on during this very tough time?
3: Well, people are definitely returning to church. It's it's one of the priests said that he's hearing confessions from people who haven't been for years and rather tough. It was rather strong to say um, because people think they might die and that's actually a good reason to go to confession. But the, the liturgy, as you know, as the listeners know, uh, of the East, of both Orthodox and Ukrainian Catholics who... Who have an eastern liturgy is is very solemn beautiful chant long you don't run in and out of uh, mass or the liturgy in one hour um, there's no early bird special you you stay and many people stand throughout the liturgy very beautiful somber easter uh, good friday was somber lines of unlike our liturgy on good friday where we kiss or reverence the crucifix they reverence uh, an icon of, of the dead Christ with his mother and the disciples. And they approach that, there's a long line. The line was going out of the church into the street. And then the last few moments, they approach that on their knees. They, they move on their knees towards the icon. They kiss it, reverence it. It's it's very beautiful, very powerful. But then Easter Sunday in the midst of a war, beautiful Alleluias, flowers, joy, joy in, in the midst of sadness so it was it was a very profound experience they they really are it's a good way of putting it they're experiencing their crucifixion but they're experiencing the crucifixion and the resurrection they're really experiencing the christian life all all enclosed within the liturgy which is what the liturgy is meant to 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 tell us and as a word do for us as well
1: Now father there's been some some concern uh, that's been expressed by other Orthodox leaders in Ukraine about the incursion and the support that the Russian Orthodox patriarch has given to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. When you were on the ground, what were you hearing as far as the leadership and how that's inspiring the faithful to stand up and to not only defend their country, but their their own autonomy as people?
3: Well, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, again, for the listeners, has actually split. There's now the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which was broken away from Moscow, from Patriarch Kirill. We interviewed one of the priests there, and he said, pretty bluntly, he said, Patriarch Kirill does whatever Putin tells him. Many, many parishes are leaving the control of the Moscow Patriarchate and are joining the separate Ukrainian Orthodox Church. So uh, this has been a grave mistake, really, for the uh, Ukrainian, sorry for the for the Russian Orthodox Church for Patriarch Kirill because he's losing he's losing many of his followers and if this war continues he'll probably we were told lose them all so um it's it's uh, in a way there's a plus because that's good for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church but Kirill is just seen as a complete puppet of of Putin just doing whatever he wants
1: and Father do you have any sense of the influence or the effectiveness of the Roman Church, of Pope Francis and the Vatican, um, there on sustaining the people of Ukraine or any kind of outreach, whether it's insufficient or whether it's had any kind of positive impact on uh, stabilizing the situation and protecting the innocent.
3: This is when one has to speak the truth in love that from what we heard no the the Ukrainian Catholics in particular feel there's a long history unfortunately of a, a sense that Rome does not really understand their position and has been far too friendly too willing to because of ecumenism to as it were accommodate the Russian Orthodox Church and that feeling has not changed there's there's a sense that it's time to stop uh, some of the U- ecumenism with the Russian Orthodox Church and give the Ukrainian Catholic Church the full, full-blooded support that it needs. And when I asked one of the Ukrainian priests about that, about Rome and about the Pope and the support, he just he basically shook his head and smiled. In other words, he was he didn't want to say it, but he was telling me by that uh, that visual, as it were. So we can do apart from praying for them. I think we can do a lot more to help the Ukrainian. Catholic Church, which is it's important to remember, was so persecuted um, and, 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 and needs that, that strengthening again.
1: Well, and Father, you, you made reference to the importance of prayer. I know that American churches, and I'm sure churches where you are in England, we've been praying for the people of Ukraine, for the churches in Ukraine. Um, we've been amazed at the resolve of the people and their success in basically protecting their land and their autonomy. This doesn't seem to be going away, but it, it definitely is a wake-up call to all of us, not only to, to be um, accessing the, the beautiful sacraments and being grateful for our ability to do so, but also to know that that's a luxury that so many of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are not able to to get to easily. So. Father, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Uh, Many thanks. Again, you just returned and were able to free up some time in your busy schedule to speak to us about the persecuted uh, in Ukraine and about religious freedom in general. You've been such an amazing advocate. Father Ben will be joining me as co-host for upcoming episodes in our season of Religious Freedom Matters focusing on international religious freedom. You can find out all of our current episodes at the National Catholic Register website. That's ncregister.com and at your favorite podcast hosting platform, so make sure to subscribe. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. Joan Desmond was with me earlier as we spoke with George Weigel and we were able to have some important thoughts from Father Benedict Keeley, again, founder of Nazarene.org on the importance of religious freedom across the globe and in Ukraine. Thank you again for listening.